Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Michelle Dennity is off this week. Now, I'm sure that will surprise our regular listeners since we told you Michelle would be this week's feature interview guest. But please don't worry. That interview with Michelle will air next week, and it's a really terrific one I know you're going to enjoy. This week, we wanted to fill an important gap that was created in the wake of Mariam Ayati and Charlie McGarrah's interviews here on Smarter Markets. After Mariam and Charlie explained the concept of tokenization in financial terms, quite a few listeners expressed a desire to better understand distributed ledger, the technology which makes tokenization possible, and which some people refer to as blockchain technology. Dr. Lehman Baird is the inventor of Hashgraph, one of the first next-generation distributed ledger systems that used proof-of-stake validation algorithms instead of the much less efficient proof-of-work algorithm used by blockchain systems, and which causes all of that consumption of electricity that you've heard so much about. We'll discuss what distributed ledger technology is, why it's so important, and where it's headed. And again, Michelle Dennity will be back next week for her feature interview. My interview with Dr. Lehman Baird is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Lehman, thanks so much for joining us on Smarter Markets. I've really been looking forward to talking to you. When we had Charlie McGarrah on the program, a lot of our listeners told us that really kind of clicked for them because Charlie explained in finance terms how this new technology of tokenizing financial markets leads to disintermediation of parties, elimination of counterparty risk, and things the finance guys understand. But that also led to a new wave of curiosity where people kind of wrote us and said, okay, now that I I get it, uh, why this is important, tell me again, what's this distributed ledger thing? That's the the blockchain part of Bitcoin. Does that mean I have to buy Bitcoins in order to use it? So let's start with the basics, Lehman. What is distributed ledger thing and what is it going to mean in terms of its impact on finance, both in the immediate term and long term? Yeah. So the whole point here is that we want to reduce friction We want to be able to disintermediate, make things faster, make them easier and much cheaper for all kinds of different financial activities and other activities as well. Uh, Anything that's interacting online with things of value. And to do that, we use these ledgers, these DLTs, distributed ledger technologies. And what a ledger does is it is a large set of computers that talk to each other and come to an agreement on what's going on. And so you can do things like do a trade where I give you something, you give me something, and they all agree that it has occurred. And they ensure that, that it's indivisibly atomic, that you'll get the thing if I get the thing, or else neither of us get it. And so there's no need for a third party to escrow your money while you're, the transaction is going through or anything like that. And because they all have to agree on it, or you know the majority of them have to agree on it, uh, you can trust that they're going to do the right thing here. They're going to trust that if I buy something from you, that I actually had the funds to pay for the thing that I think I'm buying from you. They can make sure that the rules of the system are enforced, and they can even make sure that they're enforced if you and I are anonymous to each other or anonymous in general. They can ensure that everything is happening the way it should happen, that um, atomic we have atomic transactions, that you get what you need as I get what I need, and that we can only do the right thing. I can't sell the same house twice to two different people that I have the property that I am selling to you before I sell it to you, those sorts of things. And so we have to have this set of computers that work together to come to an agreement. And that's what the DLT is. That's what a, a blockchain or a ledger or one of these networks is. 
Lehman, if this means that I can buy something from you, even if we're on different continents, without any concern for half the transaction happening and half of it not happening, you know, you, you got my money, but I never got the, the shares of stock or whatever I was buying from you, that eliminates the need for escrow agents and brokers and so forth. How far does this go? What does it ultimately mean? Are we going to see eventually the entire financial market landscape re-architected on this new technology? Is that the ultimate direction? And how far off is that? So in a sense, obviously, there will be lots of different systems in use. Not everything happens on a ledger. But what you are going to see is that every part of the economy and the financial system is using ledgers for at least part of what it's doing to greatly reduce the friction and to make things faster and cheaper and safer. And so I think that you're going to find that it, it's like saying, what do we use computers for? Well, we don't do everything on computers, but every aspect of our economy touches computers and uses computers for part of it. And the result is improvements in every aspect of our economy. It's going to be very similar. Or you could say, what do we use the internet for? Well, we don't use the internet for everything, but it, it is part of everything that we're doing. And, uh, and we're going to see the same thing with ledgers. It's a natural evolution of what the internet gave us. The internet gave us the ability to talk to each other, but it wasn't necessarily trustworthy. With ledgers, we can talk to each other and it is trustworthy. We can do transactions that are trustworthy. And so I think that this actually is going to end up affecting everything. Timescale, we see it happening right now, This starting this transition. People are taking the first tentative steps. I think that this year we're going to see quite a bit of, of movement of tokenizing real value, real value being moved from the real world into these ledgers. The cryptocurrency has some value already, but what's interesting is we're going to start seeing real world stocks and bonds and real estate and paintings and fine wine all being tokenized. And we're going to see real world information that is incredibly important, provenance and so on, being put into these ledgers. And you have guarantees about immutability and things that can't be changed. You can't cook the books. All of this we're seeing moving into the ledgers. And I think that it's very rapid. Uh, of course, it will take a decade for, for the change to completely happen, just like when the internet came along. But we're at the point where when the internet finally started to really make an impact and lots of people were using Amazon to buy things, I think that we are right on the verge of that equivalent when it comes to ledgers. Now, you and I know being in the software industry, or at least I used to be in the software industry, uh, generally when there's a new good idea, the first version of it kind of demonstrates the idea, but it takes a couple of versions before it's really ready for prime time. You know, before there was Windows, we had several years of MS-DOS. Where are we in this story? Because the very first distributed ledgers were actually part of the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. And then people started using them for other things. There was a, a prediction that a whole lot of other things would be based on these ledgers. It was a little bit slow to get started compared to some predictions. Where are we in this story and where are we headed in terms of how this is likely to play out? Well, we are just now getting to the point where all the pieces are in place for real-world usage, and we're seeing real-world usage uh, just starting up now. But the history is interesting. So, you know, Bitcoin is arguably the start of this. Now, of course, we had various forms of the equivalent of distribu distributed stuff going on for decades prior to that. But in a very real sense, Bitcoin was the start. And the idea was you could have a cryptocurrency, basically money, that is just distributed across all these computers that don't even know each other and they're kind of anonymous there's no central bank there's no central government it's just all distributed and these computers are running it and that's all it did it was just a cryptocurrency it was just a, um, a store of value and, uh, and it's actually fairly expensive to transfer it that was the first generation very slow and only did one thing but it was kind of revolutionary because hey we could actually have something of value that we can trust even though there's no one single party controlling it. In fact, maybe we trust it more because there's no one central party controlling it. And then we had systems that came out that said, well, now wait a second, if I can store information about this cryptocurrency in this ledger and everyone agrees on it and it can never be changed and it's public and, and immutable, well, maybe I could store other information too. Maybe I could store, you know, who owns what or store information about you know real estate you could record where it is or other information like that and so people started saying hey we could just take this this blockchain that was designed to store nothing but cryptocurrency information but you know we can we can store other information in it why don't we start using it for that and that was kind of a second generation or evolution of the usage of these things 
we won't just use them for passing cryptocurrency around. We'll just use it to store information. And it's beautiful because then you're guaranteed that everyone in the world sees the same information. I can't sell you the Brooklyn Bridge and then sell someone else the Brooklyn Bridge. And I can't sell it at all unless I own it. So then once we had both the equivalent of money and the equivalent of property being stored in it, the obvious next thing was, well, can we trade my money for your property and do transactions and do ways of of, uh, having guaranteed atomic transactions between people where we swap things or even three-way transactions between three people, even among anonymous people. And so in the third thing, we had the ability to do these smart contracts. Smart contracts are little programs that run on it, and they can do anything. They're just like a computer program, Turing complete. They can do anything. And so, of course, they started off very slow, but they give you the ability to do any arbitrarily complex interactions. And so you could have multiple people interacting in a complex way, and the rules are completely enforced, and yet there's no single party you have to trust. The trust is just distributed across this whole network. As long as most of the nodes are honest, you're fine. Uh, Or as long as uh, the first ones were built on hashing power, as long as you know how much hashing power is in the world and it goes the right way, then you're fine. There are some very weak assumptions you have to make. And as long as those very mild things are true, then you have 100% guarantee that things are working. And then once we had that generation where we could now transfer and buy and sell and do complex operations... Then the next step was, well, could we start setting up markets where we have bids and asks coming in and then this thing does the matching. And then once it's done the matching, it does the settling and clearing instantaneously and guaranteed and all at once and with great security. Could we do that kind of thing? And then that's now something that we can do. If you're really fast and if you have fairness in how the bids and asks can be ordered, you can actually have ledgers be doing that. And so what we have seen are these different generations And as people have become more interested in it, there's also been a lot of talk about how you can scale it all up. And uh, we're now starting to get to the point where all of that is true. And then you also have to wait for, of course, regulations to catch up. But regulators are becoming more and more open to these things. Uh, I love the recent U.S. ruling that banks can run nodes in these ledgers. They can run one of the computers that are coming to the agreement. And they can do transactions with um, stable coins on these ledgers. And they are now authorized to do that. That's just extremely exciting. And um, investment firms are now starting to invest in some of these things. So we are seeing now a maturity. We still have more to go, but we are starting to see the regulators embracing this. And we are starting to see the financial community embracing it as well. And so we're, we're really getting to the point of maturity. I would say it's the equivalent the internet you know, started a long time before anybody had ever heard of it. But when it really started to impact the actual financial world was in the 90s, and it just exploded on the scene all at once. And I'd say that in ledgers, we're at that point right now. We're at the beginning of that explosion part. And I just want to clarify, Lehman, because you described atomic transactions as part of that. For, for any of our finance listeners who, who think we're talking about nuclear weapons development, in computer speak, an atomic transaction refers to when two or more things are organized in a computer system to make sure that either the whole thing happens or none of it happens. And it's really critical to finance because if we want to do a situation where I pay you a million dollars for a, a condo in Barbados... Either the million-dollar transfer doesn't happen or the transfer of the ownership of the property does happen. We can't have half of it happen where you get the money, but I don't get the property, or I get the property and you don't get the money. So what these ledgers do is they make sure that either the whole transaction happens or none of the transaction happens, replacing human escrow agents and the functions that, that escrow lawyers and so forth used to do. Is that a fair description? It is. And the the escrow part of it is what's fascinating to me, is that the obvious way humanity has organized itself to ensure this when you have mutually distrustful parties is you can try signing contracts and hoping that the legal system can go after them after the fact if they rip you off. Or you can find someone that we both agree that we trust, and I give him my money and you give him your stock, and then he passes your stock onto me and the money to you. And if either of us doesn't do our part, then he just returns what he was given to the original person, escrow. And so it's an obvious way of doing it, but it slows things down. It's inefficient. It's yet one more person we have to pay that we would like to disintermediate. And it's one more person we have to trust. Of course, you have to trust the escrow agent. 
So it adds complexity to the system and cost and time and weakens the trust. What is better is if you and I, as complete strangers to each other with no trust at all in each other, can do one of these transactions and we have an absolute guarantee that I will get the stock and you will get the money or neither of us gets anything, that it's guaranteed that both halves of it will both occur. And it's insured. We don't have to worry about suing each other if it doesn't happen. It's just guaranteed to happen. And we don't have to have a third-party escrow agent holding things and then passing them on. It just happens. And that's the power of these ledgers. Just like the internet gave us the power of everyone can communicate with everyone, now we have the power of anyone can interact with someone else and have the rules enforced without having to trust any third party. Lehman, I agree with you that where we're headed, and although I guess I, I might disagree slightly that I think ultimately it's more than a decade, at least in my estimation, we're eventually going to get to the point where the entire financial system is based on this distributed ledger technology. All assets are transacted, not with T plus three days clearing, but T plus zero milliseconds clearing. I, I buy the thing from you. I've got the thing. You've got my money. And it's done. Nothing has to be settled. Nothing has to be cleared. And that's the way every financial transaction works, from buying a lawnmower to uh, buying 100 shares of stock to buying a home to other financial transactions. And the currency that we're transacting in is probably going to be a digital currency, which might have a lot of similarity to the early generation of cryptocurrencies, although I personally don't agree with the people in the Bitcoin community who think that Bitcoin is necessarily going to become the dominant digital currency. I think that the central banks that are proposing to issue government-sanctioned digital currency are more likely to prevail in the long run. But I predict ultimately what we get to is a financial system that's based on digital currency, which the currency transactions are settled on these distributed ledgers. And all of the things that you buy and sell with that money, those transactions are settled on these distributed ledgers. Now, that vision, Lehman, really says we're running the entire global economy, that the whole planet is running on this distributed ledger technology that all works across the internet. Number one, do you agree with that long-term vision? But much more importantly, number two, tell us the roadmap, because this technology is definitely not there right now to support what I just described. What would it take, what it's needed in order to support that vision of running the entire global economy on this technology? And what needs to happen between now and then in terms of the advancement of the technology? Yes. So in, in a general sense, um, everything you said is, is correct. Generally, we're heading that kind of direction. I think a good analogy is that when computers were invented, we switched from using paper to having ones and zeros in a computer representing almost everything in the world. It was a very slow process. It happened gradually. We've had the, the low-hanging fruit first, and then later we got more things. But it's just so compelling. Instead of recording everything on paper, you record it in a computer, and then it's faster and more efficient and more secure and more reliable, and, and you can make backups more easily and all of that. So we're going to see something similar. now. We're going to be moving for instead of just like right now, the US dollar is almost entirely ones and zeros in computers. Paper money doesn't really get used very much. I mean, a very tiny, tiny fraction of our money supply is paper money. Most of it is ones and zeros in computers. But it's ones and zeros in computers that do not facilitate easy transactions. And so it takes, it can take me days to wire you some money, which is insane because, you know, computers can send ones and zeros in milliseconds. But it takes a long time. We don't yet have a system that is extremely efficient in transferring around these ones and zeros. And that's what the ledgers are about. And so I do think that what we are going to see is that ultimately everything will have its value in a way that you can transact on these ledgers and you can have the guarantees without having to go through a long process of humans involved at every step of the process. And so, yes, we can go from days to seconds in these transactions and even increase our confidence in them in some ways, and even have new kinds of transactions. And we can talk about that. I think that anytime you make things a thousand times faster, you don't just do the old things faster. You actually could do new kinds of things. But before I talk about that, you had asked, how are we going to get there? What are the steps to get there? Okay. So first of all, you have to have the ledger be able to have within itself a representation of these valuable things. So if we are talking about something like the U.S. dollar, 
you need to have some kind of a representation of the U.S. dollar in these ledgers. Right now, the real representation of the U.S. dollar is mostly ones and zeros in the, in the computers of banks and ultimately the Federal Reserve Banks. That's the real representation of it. But that doesn't lend itself to these, these transactions. And so what you end up having to do is that you either create representations in the ledger that are wrapping the actual dollar. And so you would have a stable coin backed by dollars. And so what this is, is it's a, a digital thing created in the ledger that represents the dollars. And when I want to create $1 worth of this token, I have to lock up $1 in a, in a bank account somewhere. That's one way of doing this. And people are working on this right now. There's a number of different types of wrapped dollars that you have stable tokens backed by dollars and other currencies. An even more advanced version of this, though, is, well, the Federal Reserve could actually use ledgers to store the dollar itself. The dollar itself could be a digital asset in a ledger. And right now, we're seeing some very small countries around the world looking at doing exactly that. And they've announced that they're going to start having CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, where their national currency is not ones and zeros in a Federal Reserve computer. Their national currency is ones and zeros in a ledger. And, you know, it may be their equivalent of the Federal Reserve that's running the computers of the ledger. But it's a huge difference because what it means is that anybody can access it. I can't log into the Federal Reserve and start doing things with their computers. But I could if they were running the CBDC on a ledger. And so it opens up the ability to transact. And so what we're seeing are small countries who, of course, can move faster in some ways, are starting to announce that they're embracing CBDCs. But probably we will see all of the large countries in the world do this as well. And I think that's where we are headed. So that's one part. But we don't have to wait for that. We do have stable tokens backed by dollars and euros and other things that we can use in the meantime. You would also, though, want to have other assets. So people have tokenized things like gold. And a tokenized gold is a token in the ledger, you know, ones and zeros in the ledger that say, here's one token, and it represents one gram of gold. And typically, these tokens are very tiny, can be broken up into very tiny pieces. So it also allow you to represent a nanogram of gold, you know, a fraction of a cent worth of gold. And so then you can transfer these around. And so then I could buy your stock by giving you some gold. And it'd be very inconvenient for me to mail you a gold coin. And then there's limits on how small it can be. But digitally, I can do it instantly. And I can just send you this gold. And the way it works is you actually have a bar of gold sitting in a vault somewhere with a serial number. And the ledger says the ownership of that bar is tokenized. And I can buy one billionth of that bar and transfer one billionth of that bar. And so we're seeing that. We see companies that are tokenizing gold. And then... This is sort of foundational. When you have that, then you start tokenizing everything else. And there are people now that are looking at tokenizing stocks and bonds and real estate and fine wine and fine art and everything else you can imagine. Spencer Dinwiddie has tokenized, you know, a basketball player, has tokenized his own future revenue. And he has been able to sell that. It's like selling shares in your own future revenue, but he's done it on ledgers. And so he's tokenized that. So as I said, whenever you make something a thousand times more efficient, you don't just do the old things faster. You start doing new things as well. And I can give other examples of where we, I think we'll enable new things. But this is the path that we go along. You need to somehow tokenize currencies. You need to tokenize commodities. And then you can start tokenizing far more complex things and complex derivatives. And you can have things that create incredibly complex derivatives on the fly and allow us to transact with them and uh, with very low friction. Lehman, something you hear a lot in the finance industry is people will say, what are these people getting so excited about with digital currency? The financial system's been digital for 35 years. It's all on computers. What's the difference? Now, you and I know that there's a difference between using computerized accounting systems to keep track of what really is a conventional currency versus using secure digital bearer instruments on a distributed ledger to track that conventional currency, as is the case with stable coins, versus 
actually having the issuer of the currency itself use a distributed ledger so that the currency itself is, in fact, a token. Not a token that tracks a piece of currency, but rather the token is the currency, which is the way that CBDCs and the cryptocurrencies work. Help us understand in a little more detail this distinction between the digital financial system that's existed for 30 plus years versus this new idea of secure digital bearer instruments. Exactly. So as I said, money right now is ones and zeros in the banks and in ultimately the Federal Reserve banks. So right now, yes, my money in my checking account is is just ones and zeros in the computer at my bank. And Amazon.com has their own bank account. And it's just ones and zeros in their bank. And if I want to buy something from Amazon, all I have to do is move some ones and zeros from my bank to their bank. But the process to do that is horrendous. So I go to Amazon and I say, I want to buy something. And I tell them my credit card number. And then what they do is they have to tell the credit card company that Lehman has tried to transfer something. And there are some limits to the security of this, but it's mostly secure. And then the credit card company will eventually get around, maybe with a fairly long delay to transferring some money from their checking account to Amazon's checking account, and also take some money from my checking account to theirs. And it ends up flowing through a lot of systems. And it isn't just a single Visa bank that is involved here. There's actually a whole chain of participants in this chain that ultimately ends up some value being transferred from my bank account to Amazon's bank account. But there is a huge chain of intermediaries, and they add time, and they add expense, and they add inconvenience at every step along the way. Contrast that. If we have U.S. dollars being stored in a ledger, then what can happen is that ledger has an account for me that says that I have some money there. This is sort of like me having a checking account with the bank, but there's no bank involved. It's just the ledger. All the computers in the ledger agree that I have some money in my, in my account. And Amazon would also have an account in that ledger. And they would all agree that Amazon has a certain amount of money in that account. And it would be possible for my computer to just send a transaction to the ledger that simply says, send some coins from my account to Amazon's account. Send some dollars from my account to Amazon's account. And within a few seconds, it's done and completely final. And the money has transferred. It hasn't gone through a long chain of going from one person to another. There haven't been any humans involved in in, uh, approving the various steps in that chain. It has just instantaneously moved from me to Amazon directly. Now, if I'm buying something from Amazon, maybe they're selling stock and I'm buying some stock. If the stock is also stored on that ledger, then instantaneously the ownership of that stock has moved to me. That also has happened instantly with no intermediaries. And if it's a ledger, we ensure that both happen. I don't get the stock unless they get the money. And they don't get the money unless I get the stock. We're guaranteed that both halves of it happen. And so in a sense, nothing's changed. Today, everything is value is stored as ones and zeros. And that continues to be the case. And we eventually shuffle around the ones and zeros. But in another sense, it's a radical change in that value transfers directly and instantaneously rather than going through multi-day processes of clearing and so on. And there are lots of layers of complexity you can add to this. Maybe you want to be able to report fraud and get refunds when there's fraud. And, there's, and so you don't want it to be <laughs> as simple as I just described. And so you can set up systems where you have a combination of simplicity and then add other kinds of complexity on top of it. But if the core is simple and instantaneous, then it does make the system as a whole more efficient. Now, you alluded a few moments ago to a new category of transactions that didn't exist before that are enabled or made possible by this new style of doing business. What did you mean by that? So what I meant was that if this really is easy and cheap, if we're talking about fractions of a cent to do all these things, which is also interesting, you know, a credit card transaction is expensive and and transactions on some ledgers are, you know, many dollars. Uh, But if we're talking about a tiny fraction of a cent to do this whole thing, and it's very fast, and it's arbitrarily complex. You can have arbitrarily complex logic to it. Then we can start talking about doing extremely interesting things. You can buy a house and divide it up into millions or billions of shares and sell the different shares. And you can talk about being able to trade them 
in very easy ways. Now, regulators may decide we don't want it to be too easy. We want to have some regulation. But ultimately, if you wanted to, you could set up markets where it's just instantaneous. Random people can trade dollars for billions of a house, and they get a billionth of that house's rent as it's being charged in the future or whatever. And you could just set it all up and automate it instantly. When you have that ability, people will start doing things like tokenizing their own future income. For example, one market I've seen recently is for trading energy. You know, power grids are becoming more complicated because if you have, say, solar panels on houses, then the houses want to sell their energy back to the grid. And so now you have a single energy grid, electrical grid that has lots of buyers and lots of sellers. And you have a market and they're going back and forth. There are people building systems now that will be able to trade energy in this market and while they're doing it, be trading carbon credits. And so you can tie together the energy credit, I'm giving you one watt hour of energy, and a carbon credit, I'm giving you a certain amount of carbon credit saying I generated this with a solar panel and so um, you know, I didn't generate CO2. And so if you want to buy my carbon credit, you get, you know, it offsets some of the carbon that your factory is emitting. And so you can tie the two together. You can build something complex and you can have a market that is simultaneously trading in both energy and carbon credits tied together. And again, it's guaranteed when you buy my energy, you also get my carbon credit and they come together and we can create these complex things on the fly. Now, of course, complex derivatives already exist, but what we can do is create is go further in that direction, make even more complex ones. And we can even do things like build in rules that say it will be affected by you know prices and things can be built into the system where they are affected by the current weather as well as current prices in different markets and you can have a single formula that uses numbers from different markets in different weather prediction stations and all sorts of things and have a single formula that combines them all and becomes part of this derivative and part of this market we can go to far more complex things and do it instantly now of course regulators will need to figure out how they want to regulate all of this We don't want a Wild West where you do everything and you can have fraud. But ultimately, what will end up happening is that we will be able to do more complex things. And whenever you're able to do that, the world economy becomes more efficient. And that's what this will end up doing. It will end up reducing friction and making the world economy more efficient. I think we agree, Lehman, on where all of this is headed in the sense that eventually, someday, every single thing we do from buying a pack of gum to paying a toll on the highway to paying your taxes to buying real estate, it all gets settled instantaneously on a global distributed ledger network that runs the entire global economy. There's no doubt in my mind that that's where we're headed to within 25 years. But you said earlier, where we are in this story right now is kind of like the early 90s in the story of the internet. The the internet started around 1965. Back then it was called the ARPANET. But it really experienced a hockey stick-shaped growth explosion in the early 90s. You're saying we're at that early 90s point. Well, you know, in the early 90s, we didn't really have anything close to what we have in terms of underlying technology. So let's talk about the distributed ledger, not the ones that we have today, but the ones that are going to run the entire global economy someday. What are the characteristics? What are the underlying requirements for those distributed ledger systems? Let's start with that. And then I want to compare that to what we have today and what it's going to take to get there. Sure. So clearly it has to be fast. You have to be able to handle many different transactions each second transactions per second. And it has to be fast in the sense that a transaction has to be finished, has to be final within seconds. You don't want to wait you know, an hour for it to become final. It has to be final within seconds. So you want fast finality. You do also want finality. You want to make sure that there comes a moment in time when you're sure that that transaction has gone through. You don't just want to become a little bit more sure and a little bit more sure until you're sure, pretty sure. You want to make sure there's a moment where you know for sure that it's happened. So you want finality. You want the finality fast. You want to be able to do many transactions each second. So we need to be able to scale these things up. It needs to be secure. You need to be able to trust that no one person is going to be able to manipulate the system. No one computer in this network could corrupt the system. That it is difficult for an attacker to shut down the system, which is also a problem. If you just freeze the system, that's a bad thing. And if the banking system were to freeze and no one could buy anything for an hour, that would be a disaster. You want to make sure that you you have resilience there. You also want fairness. If you're going to be doing markets, 
as opposed to just one-on-one transactions. So instead of me just buying something from Amazon, if you want to have things like stock markets that are digital, then we need to have fairness, which says, if I send my transaction out and the whole network receives my transaction, and then you send out your transaction, the whole network receives yours, that I get credit for mine being before yours. We want the transactions to be officially said to be in the order that they actually reach the network, the network as a whole. And so you want to make sure that it is fair. And then you want to make sure that it is well-governed. You want to make sure that whoever is in charge of deciding how do we change the software on this ledger? How do we add features to it? How do we change its behavior? How do we even set the pricing and so on in this ledger? That that is wisely managed. So you want to make sure that people who are managing it know what they're doing. And you want to make sure that, again, no one party can do nefarious things. You want checks and balances. You want multiple competing parties that all have to together come up to the solution, come to an agreement so that no one party can do it. And you want transparency. You want to ensure that everything they do, they are held responsible for, that everybody can know what they're doing. So even if they did collude and do something evil, everybody would know it and hurt their reputation, that they are entities that care about their reputation. But if you can make it fast, fair, and secure, and I said fast. Of course, if it's fast, we also imply low cost. So you really do want fractions of a cent for all these operations. And if we can do that, which is also interesting, you know, it costs me $30 to send you a wire. It's just ones and zeros. Why does it cost me $30? Why doesn't it cost me a hundredth of a penny? I don't know. Well, I do know it's because of our current system, but it shouldn't be that way. And so with ledgers, it won't. I'll be able to send you a wire for a fraction of a penny, not for $30. But what we will need is systems that are fast, fair, secure, well-governed and of course, low cost. If we get to that, then the ledgers are able to create the future we're talking about. Okay. So the major points I heard there were fast, fair, secure, and well-governed. Let's drill down on those and take them individually, comparing not only what we're trying to get to, but where we stand now in the story and, and what the challenges are in order to move ahead. Let's start with fast, but I'm going to extend that and say fast and low cost. Uh, what does it mean to be fast and low cost? You know, the, in the beginning, the earliest versions of Bitcoin could only do a few transactions per second. That's not per user. That's the whole global network could only do a few transactions per second. Then with the Lightning Network, which is this this sort of off-chain complexity, I don't want to go down that, that technical rat hole, but they made it faster, but it's still not fast enough to run the whole global economy. Where are we in terms of the overall story of fast and low cost with this distributed ledger technology? Sure. So to make it faster, you either make the ledger faster or you use things on the side, which are essentially other networks of computers that are working with the main network. So instead of having just a single main network do everything, you have others hanging off of it. And the idea is that sometimes I do my transactions on these other networks, and then they only periodically have to talk to the main network, not for every transaction. So maybe they it's like running up a a bar tab at your local bar, and then once a week, it goes to the bank and deposits money. That way, not every time I buy something at the bar do I have to go talk to the bank. I only have to talk to the bar, and then once a week, it talks to the bank. You can have that kind of thing. You can even have things where I'm trading things with the bartender, and only when there's a dispute do we have to go bother the bank to resolve the dispute. You can set up those sorts of things. These are called layer two. The idea is that layer one is the actual main ledger. It's acting like the bank. And layer two is like the bar that has the bar tab. So we can do some things with layer two. And it's not a panacea, but we can do that. We can also try to speed up the layer one, the central ledger, make it faster. And that's helpful. It's not a panacea, but that's helpful too. And we can do both. You can do both the layer two things, and you can do making the single ledger faster. And you can also do something called sharding, which is the the central ledger itself is actually a bunch of little ledgers talking to each other. So that's like layer one and a half. It's layer one looking like layer two. So there's a lot of different things we can do to try to make these things faster. And it appears that what you really need to do is all of them. You need to have a combination of all these things. So make your central ledger as fast as possible because there are some usage patterns that will require you to touch the central ledger a lot. And then maybe shard the central ledger so that you get some additional speed up from that. And then use layer two because you get additional speed up from that. And we can even talk about interledger communication, where maybe you and I are even doing things on separate ledgers. But if the ledgers can talk to each other pretty fast, 
then that also allows us to speed up because you can bother your ledger and I'll bother my ledger and we won't both be using up resources at the same, you know, on the same ledger at the same time. So all of these different things are being pursued and are showing fruit now and will allow the global ledger system to scale up to work with the global economy. Now, one of the big trends going back to the core of this, which is making the ledger itself faster, a criticism of the original blockchain ledger that was used with Bitcoin is that it relies on this algorithm called proof of work. And a lot of people say that's just so inefficient. There's something called proof of stake, which a lot of people think is better. And that's where we need to go. What does that mean? What's the difference between proof of work, proof of stake? How do we make sense of these terms? Sure. So the ledger is a bunch of computers coming to an agreement. The question is, how do they come to the agreement? You could say, well, maybe they just vote. But if any random anonymous person can stand up another node on this, in this network, then one person could pretend to be a million separate people, create a million nodes, have a million votes, and dominate the vote. That's a Sybil attack. Uh, you know, it's like a person with multiple personalities. So you need to prevent that. And there are different ways of preventing that. One way is proof of work, which says, yeah, anybody can start a node and they can be anonymous and they can be part of this network, but you have to buy a supercomputer and make it solve some really hard math problems. The math problems don't have any real value. The whole point of the math problem is that it's hard and takes a supercomputer to solve. And then what you do is you say, you get to, to influence the outcome of the network proportional to how much energy you're spending in, in on your supercomputers or how hard your supercomputers are working. And so everybody in the world can be working hard to solve these problems. They can be doing work. And then when they finally solve the problem, it'll be random who gets to solve it. Then they get to add another block of transactions to the network, uh, to the blockchain. They get to say, okay, here's a set of transactions we will officially put, make them be the next ones that get done. Because the most important thing here is to put the transactions in order. And so it's random who solves the problem. And the bigger your supercomputer, the more likely you are the one to do it. And then you get paid some coins for having done so. So that's proof of work. You're proving that you did the work of running that supercomputer. And that means that right now for proof of work systems, everybody has to buy these ASIC-based computers. ASIC is a computer chip specifically designed just for this purpose. It's kind of cool. It's an application-specific integrated circuit. And so you build a gigantic computer with lots of those, and then you use lots of electricity. I think uh, Bitcoin uses more electricity than Ireland right now. Uh, it's kind of funny. And typically, the computers tend to move to countries where the electricity is cheap. So we have some consolidation where there are lots of computers in the same country. I just want to clarify something before you go on, Lehman, because I think a lot of people have the idea that, well, oh, yeah, you know, it's expensive. It requires a lot of electricity. But look, in order to get the encryption, the security that, that these tokens have, it takes all of that computing horsepower, all of that electricity in order to encrypt the network in order to make it safe. That's actually a, a misunderstanding of what's going on because really the encryption that's needed to encode the blockchain, the sequence of transactions, is much, much smaller. The reason for all of those transactions to occur is essentially it's just a way of proving that you're not a guy who's just impersonating thousands of other people. That's the only real reason. It's not that we need to do all of that processing in order to make the encoding of the blockchain itself secure. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the encryption is easy and making a chain where the chain is unbreakable is easy. We have cryptography right now that runs at blazing speed on incredibly cheap chips. Your cell phone has far more power than is needed to do that. That's easy to do. The danger is that your single sequence of transactions might fork and nobody would know it. So I, I only own one coin and I try to spend it at Alice's store and I try to spend it at Bob's store. Well, you don't want to have the official history of all the transactions showing me spinning at Alice's store and also have another official history of all transactions that show me doing it at Bob's store. You don't want to have two different official histories. You need a single one. And so the reason we do proof of work is to maintain a single history where it's hard for somebody to add something to that single history. And it will happen so infrequently that by the time one person adds something, everybody will hear about it before the next person gets around to adding it. 
and it ensures that we have a single chain and not a, not a fork chain. And so in Bitcoin, you add another block every 10 minutes. And the idea is that the problems you're solving are so hard that we only add them slowly, which prevents the attack of a single person pretending to be a bunch of people and adding a bunch of different things to multiple chains at the same time, multiple forks at the same time. So you prune off the branches. Sometimes you do get two branches in, in Bitcoin, but the proof of work allows you to prune off one of them and just go with the other one. So this is, you know, the central problem is how do we manage who has the right to add something more to this list? And as long as we can all agree on that, we're fine. Proof of work is one way of doing that. You just make it really hard to add to it. And so that is one method for doing it. And that works. It, it prevents branches. You can't have it, the single chain branch into two branches and then have both of them grow forever. What happens is that one of them eventually dies. And we usually say that eh, after about six, you can be pretty sure that the branch won't, you know, the, the false branch won't grow to beyond six blocks. So within an hour, you know for sure that it isn't going to grow. And so, you know, you have something, not really finality, but something like finality on Bitcoin with six confirmations, which means in about an hour. And this works. So this is, this is what proof of work does. There is another way, though, different from proof of work that you could use to accomplish the same thing. And it doesn't use supercomputers. What it does is it says, sure, maybe anonymous people can join our network. They can make as many nodes as they want. But when we're voting on what the next transaction is in our network, we don't give every computer an equal weight in the vote. We give you a weight proportional to how many coins you have, for example, how much cryptocurrency you have. And then an anonymous person could stand up a million nodes, but they have to split up their coins a million different ways. And so each node only has one one millionth of the vote. And so there's no benefit to doing this Sybil attack, which is when you stand up lots of sock puppets, lots of nodes of your own. Uh, you might as well just stand up one node. And your weight in the, in the final vote is proportional, say, to how much cryptocurrency you're holding. So we're using the cryptocurrency to make the network secure. And if we do that, if it is hard for an attacker to get all the cryptocurrency in the world, or you know, a large fraction of it, if that's hard, then we are protected against these civil attacks. An attacker can't just control the whole network. The network really is a, an agreement between individual different people who are not colluding, as long as one person can't get control of lots of the cryptocurrency. And so the advantage of the proof of stake is that you don't have to do, you know, don't have to have a supercomputer and use lots of electricity, but you end up accomplishing the same thing. And remember, the goal was when we're voting on what the next transaction should be, we don't want one person to be able to dominate because if they did, they could not only control the official history, they could create multiple conflicting official histories and approve all of them. And that would allow you to double spend. I could spend that same coin in Alice's store and Bob's store. Both of them would think they got the money and I would get two different products for the price of one. I would basically have been forging, counterfeiting money. And so both of these approaches can stop that from happening. Now, the reason that we might want to favor proof of stake over proof of work is primarily to make the network go faster and have lower cost. What kind of degree of improvement? Does it make it twice as fast? Does it make it five times as fast? Uh, how much do we improve the speed and reduce the cost by switching from proof of work to proof of stake? You can improve the, the speed a fair amount. It depends on exactly what algorithms you're using, but there's no reason the network can't reach finality in seconds doesn't take an hour, it can take seconds. And you can have a proof of work system that works in some number of seconds or minutes, but proof of stake systems tend to be faster. Also, it's vastly cheaper because you're not spending all that money on electricity. And so ultimately that ends up making the transactions themselves cheaper. Now, again, one way to make a proof of work system cheap is to not use the proof of work system for all your transactions. Use these layer two systems, you use other networks and they only talk to the main one occasionally. And so maybe I run up my bar tab and each time I buy something is cheap. And then once a week, the bar goes to the bank and just deposits a single amount and they pay a gigantic fee at that point. But it's only once a week and it's amortized over lots of things, lots of little transactions. So that's one way of trying to make proof of work cheap. Proof of stake is just cheap to begin with. There's no inherent supercomputer involved. And so the transactions you would expect to be cheap. And so it just sort of comes out of it anyway. But you'd still probably want to do layer two stuff. You just don't have to to get the transactions to be cheap. So that's an advantage. And then, of course, there is some degree 
there can be a degree of security advantage just in that if you don't need lots of electricity, then people don't congregate in places where electricity is cheap. And there's some advantage to that as well, just for security of having them more distributed around the globe rather than all bunched up where the electricity is cheap. The next major point that you made is that the ledger has to be fair. What exactly do you mean by fair and uh, what does it take? Where do we stand in terms of how, how much fairness exists now versus what's ultimately needed? Yeah. So what we would like for some applications, for markets, for stock markets, that kind of thing, what we would like is that if two people submit their transactions to the network and one person's transaction is reaching all the computers in the network before the other person's is, then the official order of those transactions should reflect that. So if you got yours to all the computers before I did, yours should officially come before mine in the official order. Not all systems have that. Some systems put them in order by having a leader put them in order. And you know, for a stock market, that leader could be malicious and put my transaction before yours, even though yours reached the whole network before mine did. You could have a, a malicious leader do that. Or a malicious leader could just start filtering it and just refuse to accept any transactions from you because I bribed him to do that. So you can have that kind of problem with a leader-based system. You tend not to have that problem with a proof-of-work system, although it's conceivable. And you definitely don't have it with some proof-of-stake systems that don't have leaders. You wouldn't have that problem. So this is something that people tend not to talk about, this fairness. But it becomes increasingly important as the ledgers are used for things like markets. On the other hand, if all I'm doing is paying Amazon for something at the price that they set on it, then the fairness doesn't matter. So it doesn't really matter in a lot of the use cases that were the early use cases of ledgers. Or if I want to put an immutable audit ledger of actions that I have done for the world to see that I can't change. Okay, you don't need fairness for that. But if you want to do things like markets, then you would want fairness. And so it's worth looking at it. And the question is, is there a guarantee that the transactions will be in the same order that they reach the network as a whole? And notice I said the network as a whole, not one computer, because we don't have one central computer that runs everything. It's when you basically reach most of the computers there. Let's talk about security next. And I think it's so important to stress the importance of this, because even though nobody's figured out a way to, to hack the Bitcoin network yet, if hypothetically somebody somehow figured something out and they managed to steal all the Bitcoins and nobody else had any because they, they stole them all, that would have a consequence where a lot of people would be very upset about having lost their Bitcoins. It would not cause the end of the world. It wouldn't cause a, a World War III kind of outcome. The vision that you and I both have of where this is all ultimately headed is truly running the entire global economy on this technology. That's a, a degree of security that literally it could be end of the world stuff if it were ever hacked to the point of somebody compromising the security completely. Can we ever really get to something that's that secure that we should trust it to run the entire global economy? And if so, how close are we to that right now? Okay, so certainly nothing is ever certain. And even the current global economy isn't certain. You know, Theoretically, it can be hacked. But there's a great deal of trust in the current system. And I think that we can absolutely have that degree of trust or maybe even more in a distributed ledger system. And, and I think Bitcoin is pretty secure right now. If you tried to break Bitcoin by building an even better supercomputer, or you tried to break it by breaking the cryptography that it uses or the hash function that it uses, I think that's a losing battle. It is true that someday we'll have supercomputers that would break our current software, but it's easy for Bitcoin to just to switch to one that's resilient to, to quantum computers. So it's not a big deal. So I think that in that sense, we have security. It is really something you can trust. I don't think anyone's going to be <laughs> finding collisions on the hash function super easy in the near future. It's just the cryptography is good. Although you also want to worry about things like how distributed are the computers. You want to make sure that they're not all in one country because then the government of that country could nationalize it. You want it spread around the world. And you want to make sure that the people that end up governing the code base are good. And so you might, some systems work on everyone who holds a coin gets to vote on the code base. And you might look at attacks on that and play out the game theory. And, uh, and so there's lots of interesting things that you do on that. I think the underlying protocols of all these systems are kind of hard to break. Although that's if you want to steal money, you could also worry about what if you want to shut down the system? What if somebody DDoSes some of the computers? You know, you flood some of the computers with messages that shut them down temporarily. Will that shut down the whole network? 
And Bitcoin's resilient to that. Ethereum is resilient to that. But some of the newer ledgers that people are trying to build to be fast become fast because they use a leader computer. And if you use a leader computer, anybody that shuts down the leader shuts down the whole network. That's a problem. It doesn't allow you to steal money. But, you know, shutting down the global economy for an hour would be kind of bad. And, you know, there was, what, two years ago? When was the, the uh, DNS hack? It was um, DDoS attacks on just the domain name system, DNS. The way that we say, you know, a domain name, like mycompany.com. That's a domain name, turning that into an IP address. That mapping got hacked. And it wasn't hacked like they broke into the computers. It was just that they flooded those computers with packets just messages from random computers on the internet and shut them down. And the result was for a few hours, nobody could buy anything on Netflix. No one could access Netflix. And I think Amazon was affected. Several companies were affected for a few hours, which of course is a big deal. And so what you want is to have a system that is resilient to DDoS attacks. It shouldn't be possible to shut down just a handful of computers and freeze the whole system. Bitcoin is great for this. And the current Ethereum is great for this, that you, um, if you shut down a few computers, the system keeps running fine. But many of the newer systems are talking about things like having leaders, in which case you're not resilient. Somebody can shut down the leader and shuts down the whole system. And there are systems where the leaders take turns. But if you know how they're taking turns, you can play follow the leader and shut down the new leader each time. And then that, again, can shut down the whole system. So some ledgers have this problem, some don't. I think that it is important you know, you'd want to use ledgers that don't have this problem because, yeah, we want to stop people from stealing money, but we also want to stop them from shutting down the whole network. So different, different types of security there. Now, talk to me about governance of this network, because even in the existing cryptocurrency world, there's been a, a lot of uh, ups and downs of, of who's in charge. Is it the miners? Is it the users of the Bitcoin system? Uh, they kind of self-regulate. It's, uh, it's not really clear exactly who's in charge. But if we're talking about a vision that you and I share of the entire global economy running on this, every national government is going to try to assert their authority over everything that happens in their country. Of course, international transactions inherently don't happen in any national jurisdiction. I, I see this as just a, a power grab where every government entity, every multinational entity like the IMF, the ECB, obviously as a, a a form of multinational entity, uh, they're going to say they're in charge of everything that happens in Europe. And I would say that a lot of these government agencies that probably will want to assert themselves as the, the rightful governors of this system are all staffed by people who have no idea what it would take to govern these technologies. How do we resolve all this? Who's in charge of this whole thing in order to get to the vision that we have of running the global economy on this technology? Yeah, so there's really four approaches to governance that uh, we're seeing different ledgers use. One is you simply let whoever's running one of these nodes in the network, you, you mentioned miners, that's what the miners are. They're just people who run computers in this network. And for Bitcoin, they're literally doing what we call mining, which is running that supercomputer to try to solve these math problems. But the point is they're doing the consensus of the network. So these, these mainnet nodes could be governed just by everybody who runs a node decides what software he wants to run. And so let's talk about just the software, because ultimately you can do everything in the software. So the governance could be saying, what software should all of our computers be running? And who gets to decide when the software changes and what features get added and pricing changes and everything's in the software? Who decides that? And so one approach is you just let everybody who runs one of these computers decides which software they want to install. And when a new version of the software comes out, it gets published and they all get to see it. And if they're all agreeing with it, they all download it and install it. And now the network is running the new version of the software. And if they disagree, maybe half of them download the new software and half of them stick with the old software, then the network splits. That's called a fork. There are also benign things that are called forks. Every upgrade is called a fork. But this is a fork that's actually a split of the network. And you can end up with, there used to be one ledger. Now we have two entirely separate ledgers. That's a possibility. And there are some problems with that. We've seen a lot of splits in ledgers that work this way. And maybe they haven't really mattered all that much. But what if you were going to start actually using the ledger to record fundamentally important real-world data, like a real estate database that keeps track of who owns which house, who owns which piece of property? If you have that stored on a ledger and it goes through one of these splits, 
Now you suddenly have two entirely separate ledgers and they start off initialized with exactly the same data. So they would both agree that I own my house. But then what if I sell my house to Alice and only update one of the two ledgers? Now it thinks that Alice owns the house and the other ledger thinks that I still own it. Okay, well then I could sell it to Bob and give him the other, you know, update him on the other ledger. That's a problem. And if someone's about to buy a house, one of the great things here is that a title search can take seconds and a tiny fraction of a cent rather than taking weeks and you know, thousands of dollars. Title searches become instantaneous. But what if there's a split? When Alice tries to buy my house, she should go to the ledger and see who owns it, see if I really own it. But I said, go to the ledger. If there's two ledgers now, which one should she go to? Should she go to both of them? Does she even know there was a split? Does she have a way of knowing that she's talking to the true ledger? And so what you want are technical guarantees that a ledger can never split. There are ways of doing that where, you know, if it did split, Alice would always know whether she's talking to the one true ledger or whether she's just talking to some copy that was made. That's something you want. And maybe you also want uh, governance that doesn't cause splits. So if we just let every node in the network decide what software it wants to run, then sometimes they will disagree on what software they should be using and it just splits. Another way of doing it is you could do on-chain governance. And that just says everyone who owns a coin gets to vote. And when there's enough votes, the software updates automatically on all the computers in the network. Theoretically, they could rebel and not follow the rules and, and go to other software and cause a split, but it seems less likely. It seems far more likely that the node operators are just going to keep allowing it to automatically update itself whenever the users vote for it. In some ways, that sounds better, but it's sort of like saying that the Federal Reserve is going to set the prime interest rate for next quarter based on votes from everyone in the world holding a dollar bill. Anyone who has a dollar gets one vote in this election where we vote what the interest rate will be next, next quarter, what the prime will be next quarter. That wouldn't work very well. Or you could just have a dictator who decides what the prime will be next quarter. And that doesn't work very well either. What maybe works better is if you have a collection of Federal Reserve banks that have expertise but are independent of each other, and they are giving inputs into what the prime is next quarter. And then you have a chairman of the Fed who ultimately ratifies it. You can have some kind of, of you know, governance, like a real world governance system for it. And we could do the same thing with ledgers. So this other alternative is to have a real governance system. I mean, like there are people officially in charge of governing it and they vote and there's procedures for how they vote on who the new voters will be, like a Congress, like a Fed, that kind of governance as opposed to just having a single dictator do the governance or a single company controlling the ledger, as opposed to having everyone who holds a coin in the ledger getting to vote, or as opposed to anyone who runs a node just deciding arbitrarily what they want to install. Those are kind of four different ways of doing governance. And we see all four in use, and um, there's pros and cons of each of them. My guess is that we're going to move towards more of the formal governance where there is a body that governs it, but the body is lots of different parties, not just one party. And the body itself votes on, among other things, the makeup of the body. And so it votes on new people coming in. That's my guess is that we're going to go towards more, just, to, just as countries have evolved from monarchies, from anarchy to monarchy to things like republics of various sorts, we'll see something similar in the world of ledgers. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe there will always be a few ledgers that are anarchic and a few ledgers that are uh, dictatorial and then some ledgers that are more formal governance of the type that I've talked about. And maybe some that are the pure democracy where everyone who has a coin can vote. We may see various things, though I tend to think that we're going to move over time towards the more formal governance that's similar to how we govern countries these days. Lehman, we've been talking mostly about financial transactions. Part of our charter here at Smarter Markets is also to talk about ESG, the, the ways that society advances as a result of improving financial markets. Are there also applications for this technology that are socially helpful? And if so, what are they? Oh, absolutely. So there are a number of people right now building socially helpful things on ledgers. I know of a, a health check comes from Safe Health, and they've built systems on ledgers to do tracking of COVID tests to make sure that you can see whether someone has the test or not, and to track the provenance of the vaccines to make sure they stayed cold at every step along the way. And you know that's a great need right now in the world, clearly. And everywhere is uh, software that is developed in the UK for COVID tracking. Uh, we have other things like the Starling Project is in cooperation with Reuters, 
which verifies news and tries to combat fake news by officially on a ledger that's immutable that everybody can see, marking what is good and what isn't. Or you have Holos systems that's in Syria, tracking and giving people advance warnings of attacks and saving lives. And they're using ledgers to do this, so that you can trust the information and that everybody can see it and that it's hard to shut down and all of those good things. Uh, the Chopra Foundation is using ledgers to set up ways of trading that allows you to get counseling for suicide prevention. And so there's a number of people that are using these ledgers to try to do good, to help people in war-torn countries, to uh, combat fake news, to help us track COVID vaccinations and um, provenance of things like drugs and helping people to prevent suicide. All of these sorts of things are being done. And I think that we'll see even more of these sorts of things in the future. Well, Lehman, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Before I let you go, tell us a little bit more about what you do at Hedera Hashgraph. You're one of the pioneers in this proof-of-stake area, but particularly something called leaderless proof-of-stake. What does that mean, and what do you do there? Sure. So um, Hedera is a ledger. We have smart contracts and cryptocurrency and files, and now a consensus service, which really helps with these layer two things and another way of doing L2. And we have a token system. So now we can tokenize assets. You talked about bearer assets. We can tokenize assets right at the native layer. So it's extra fast and very, very cheap, fraction of a cent cheap. And so we do that. It's all built on the Hashgraph algorithm, which is an algorithm that doesn't have a leader. So you can't shut us down by, by attacking the leader. In fact, there's math proofs that it's asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerant, which just means you can't shut us down by attacking the leader. And we're guaranteed to have finality. And as long as more than two-thirds of the nodes are honest or the voting is honest, you're guaranteed that everything works right. So we, we built on Hashgraph. It's very fast. We can do many thousands of transactions per second on the, on the main net without sharding, without L2. And then, of course, if you do other things, you could even faster. And um, we have a governing council that owns Hedera and makes the decisions on where Hedera is going to go. And it's spread across the world in different continents and different industries. And it includes names like Google and IBM and Boeing and LG Electronics. We have the largest telecom in Europe, Deutsche Telekom. We have one of the largest, a couple of the largest law firms in the world. We have telecommunications companies. We have retailers, the, uh, the one of the largest online and in-person retailers physical retailers in South America is Magalu. We have them. And these aren't just advisors. These actually own and govern us. And so that's what we are. And please give us your website for people who want to learn more about what you do there at Hedera Hashgraph. Yeah. So you can go to Hedera.com. And Hedera is H-E-D-E-R-A. It's the Latin word for ivy. So go to Hedera.com and uh, you can see all sorts of things that we're doing. And uh, we, we hope that uh, this was somewhat helpful. Lehman, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Next week, my co-host, Michelle Dennity, will be back, but she'll be in the feature interview seat rather than in her usual role as host. We'll discuss Michelle's background in the fascinating world of digital privacy, and we'll even battle it out with some disagreement between Michelle and I with respect to how much digital privacy we really still have left and whether or not big tech is really on our side in terms of doing the right things to make sure that we keep what privacy we still have. That's coming up next in the next installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.